Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Erin Moniz, and I'm here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters hosted by CBE International. Today, we are very excited to have Dr. Sandra L. Glan, um, from uh, who got her PhD at University of Texas at Dallas and is a professor of media arts and worship at Dallas Theological Seminary, where her emphases are first century backgrounds related to women, culture, gender, and the arts. She has authored or edited more than 20 books, including one of my favorites, Vindicating the Vixens, uh, Earl Grey with Ephesians, Sanctified Sexuality. She's a co-editor as well as a co-editor for Sexual Intimacy in Marriage. And we are delighted today to speak with her about her forthcoming book with IVP academic, Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. Dr. G, we are so excited to have you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Very happy to be here. It was actually a CBE conference where I was presenting that someone came up afterward wow. and said, hey, would you think about writing that Artemis book? So that's I kind of a it. fun CBE connection. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I love it. That's great. Well, as our listeners know, we always like to start off with a rousing round of watch, read, or listen. So Blake Dean, lay it on us. What are you watching, reading, or listening to? It's boring. I'm rewatching The West Wing and loving every second of it. This is my third rewatch, and I loved the West. I love The West Wing, and I love all the characters, and they feel like my friends. It's like a and comfort so, food, right? It, it's... But like with snappy dialogue and rich character development. <laughs> well, what about you? Can't fall for that. Um, I am actually rereading Henri Nouwen's book Intimacy. Um, it's one of those small little treatments that he has written and, but it's just so rich and, um, and I'm, I'm working, I'm reworking through some of the things I read back when I was doing my uh, doctoral work on a theology of intimacy. And I was reading that earlier today and it was just refreshing my soul. So bringing up the level a little bit this time with my, <laughs> with my contribution here, but, um, but Dr. G, what might you be watching or reading or listening to currently? I am in the middle of Karen Swallow Pryor's new book, The Evangelical Imagination, oh, yeah. How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. So good. And, it, you know, I love yeah. that she's she's about my age, maybe a little younger, but so we grew up in, in the same news stories, the same mm. music, and both of us uh, have loved the arts and particularly sort of the Western canon of literature. And so to know kind of what she's talking about is really fun. Um, yeah. And she has some really, really important critiques. Yes. I'm very much looking forward to that. I am. Um, I got the, the pleasure to meet her a few years back and I've been following her on the socials ever since. Yeah. Real big fans. So. She's great. Yeah. It's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. Blake and I just finished reading um, some advanced yeah. copies of your book and we have some questions that we think will be really um valuable for our listeners. So we want to start with just addressing the fact that you have you have several books out about women in the New Testament, including a history of Ephesus. But um, can you tell us more about why you decided to write this book? Mm -hmm. You said you said you gave us a little preview that it was at a CBE conference where this first came yeah. up. But tell us what's behind mm -hmm. you wanting to tackle this passage in First Timothy. So if you've read the book, then you know that I started with my story. And it was really my story that drove me to look at who is Artemis, because my husband and I, although we wanted a large family, 
I'm a fifth generation Oregonian. I thought I would wear Birkenstocks and have many children, which if you know me is really funny. Um, I thought it was wrong for women to go to seminary. So I've had a little bit of a character arc there on what I think a woman can do. But uh, my journey was 10 years of infertility, three Hmm. years of no success, seven early losses, and then an ectopic pregnancy. And then we had three failed adoptions before we finally had a successful adoption of our daughter. So you can imagine, here I go into marriage sort of with a shiny, happy people perspective of ultra conservative, you know, women are made for motherhood. And when that does not happen for us, I have no plan B for what that looks like. I look around at my single friends now and think, how did I, how did that not cross my mind? Um, You know, there are lots of single people and also widows in the world, you know, but anyway, it was deeply ingrained in me, uh, both from Christian subculture and from the broader culture um, Mm. that woman was really made for childbearing and I had to go back to Genesis and start over as I had a huge spiritual crisis of identity and relook at where did I pick up that thinking? How much of it is biblical? How much is subculture? Uh, You look at the Proverbs 31 woman and wonder, why did I miss that she's actually buying and selling real estate? (laughs) And so, but what does that have to do with Artemis? Well, when you come to that enigmatic little phrase, a woman will be saved through childbearing. I had been taught that it meant any woman uh, who loves Jesus and has sort of any kind of semblance of teaching, which I had had my teaching gifts affirmed, uh, is supposed to direct all of that, not in the church or any sort of public ministry, but in her nuclear family. Mm -hmm. And so when the nuclear family did not happen for us, and then I started noticing that Paul actually tells people in Corinth to think about staying single. (laughs) I'm like, wait, something's wrong here. Um, and so I had to know for myself, what in the world does that mean? First Timothy 1.3 tells uh, readers that Paul is writing a personal letter to Timothy. It's not a letter to the church. It's to a person who's going to know exactly what he's talking about. So he doesn't explain a lot of his terms. Mm-hmm. And we know that the last time we saw Timothy, we saw Paul in Ephesus, which is where he's left Timothy, There were two major things that happened. One was a big magic burning bonfire with uh, magicians. Immediately after that in the text, in Acts, you see this disturbance relating to Artemis of the Ephesians, where for two hours they're yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So that's a big hint that Artemis is on Paul's mind. And so I was looking for, is there an explanation in Artemis worship that relates to childbearing? and Bingo, bingo, bingo. Um, (laughs) Absolutely, there was. And one of my big surprises was there is also a connection to magic. I had assumed Mm -hmm. that those two things in the text were unrelated, but Mm -hmm. I was finding inscriptions that that related to magic and incantations with Artemis's name in them. And those bulbous things on the on the goddess, you know, that we have thought maybe were breasts are probably Hittite magic bags. Mm -hmm. So big connection to magic and, and yeah. Artemis. Yeah, I um I found reading your book because I in reading other commentators on particularly that first Timothy passage, particularly that kind of troubling phrase, um Artemis comes up, but but your exploration of Artemis does disrupt some of those other commentators' assumptions about um Artemis's role with um 
with motherhood and fertility. Right. Um, and so I wonder, and it, I mean, deeply connects to the title of your book, which is so um, uh, snappy. <laughs> There's no question love, about where I end up I love thinking. it. No, I love it. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit sure. about um, the title, Nobody's Mother, um, yes. being obviously about Artemis, but also um, why is it of importance to understand the distance between um, the Artemis that's assumed to be related to fertility versus right. Artemis as a midwife with kind of a reign of life and death? That's a great question. So uh, I would say a couple of decades ago, there were those, including some people really connected with CBE, who were saying that Artemis was a fertility goddess. Now, I don't oppose any of them. I have way more access to inscriptions on the internet. I have Google Translate. Um, and their hunch was that Artemis was on Paul's mind. And that has proven to be an absolutely correct hunch. But the best knowledge we had at the time was really just looking at these bulbous appendages. And the logic went, she looks like she has many breasts. What are breasts for? You know, they're for yeah. nursing. Therefore, she must be a mother goddess of fertility. And the problem with that was when those ideas got published, they were pretty soundly and and you know for good reason uh, written off as really bad interpretations of the data. And so, but the problem was then people also threw out with that. Uh, throwing out the fertility goddess, they also threw out the idea that Artemis was on Paul's mind. Mm -hmm. And so I was coming back because my husband took me on an anniversary trip and we were in Ephesus and I'm looking, the guide is telling us, yeah, you see these pictures of the Amazon women. Um, you know, they're, they're very connected with our city. And I'm like, really? Because I'd heard there was no connection um, with Amazons and Artemis and, and I said, so what is this fourth century? Is this too late? And they're like, oh no, this is like within a hundred years of Paul. I'm like, okay, so I have to know for myself. And I really didn't know where the data was going to lead me. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I chose a secular university that was going to vet my historical work and inscription work. Mm -hmm. I didn't want people with an iron in the fire. They had no idea right. what we were thinking and wrestling with. And, and like right. I said, I really didn't know where I would end up. I just wanted good historians to vet my inscription translation and my understanding of what was happening in Ephesus. And the conclusion was, as far back as Homer, Artemis has been a virginity god. She watched her mother give birth to Apollo. I think she was triggered you know, by any, <laughs> uh, any sort of connection to sex and motherhood after that. And she asked her daddy Zeus to make her immune to Aphrodite's arrows, and he granted her her wish. So really, Artemis has herself has never been connected with fertility, but there is mm. an ancient fertility sort of goddess, probably in the seventh century BC Ephesus and got morphed with Artemis perhaps. But by the time of Paul, uh, that is completely gone. And that was my, what I had to figure out as a, uh, you know, as a, what do you, an investigator, yeah. how do you narrow that down? If you go to Ephesus today, you see this big, beautiful library and you find out, oh, well, it wasn't there when Paul was there, you know, come on, came a hundred years later. Yeah. How do you sort through what was there and what wasn't? And one of the ways you sort through is first you do start with Homer and the ancient sources, and that's where the antiquity part of the title is. Mm -hmm. But then you narrow 
your study to what did people at the time of the earliest Christians say? Did they continue describing her as a virgin? Yes, they did. Did they continue describing her as bows and arrows? Yes, they did. Did they say anything about fertility? No. In fact, she's probably more of a virgin goddess than a bow and arrow goddess in Mm. Ephesus. Uh, And so, but she's a midwife. So in the same way, you can be a single woman and celibate in a midwife. Artemis had pity on women who uh, got themselves into such a predicament. Uh, and it was thought that she, the people would pray, either deliver me, you know, get me through this safely or euthanize me with your arrows. And that her mm. arrows were said frequently to be painless. Uh, and so the idea being, the number one cause of death for women is going to be childbirth at this time. And, you know, you don't just die in birth. You could ride for days before you finally die. It's just people are terrified. It's horrifying. And so I suspect this is the number one challenge to the apostle Paul going into a city where this is the number one fear. And (laughs) think about in our own country, how much fear can be a motivator. Uh, And so he's up against you know, how do I take away the fear of childbirth? And to be honest, I think he is telling Timothy that in his world at the time of the earliest Christians, women are not going to die in childbirth. I think he's talking probably about a maximum of 20 women. I don't think he's talking about everybody for all time. I think we see this so often in missions, you go in and the local God, well, you you see it in the, uh, you know, in the plagues of Egypt, right? You have frog gods and so you have a frog play like god is constantly shown to be bigger and better than whatever the local deity is yeah yeah no that's a that that's that's so powerful and and i love that we get um this sort of ability to revisit the scholarship in this history and get a chance to really tease out and think about where paul was in his setting and what he might be thinking and how he might be instructing timothy i think uh, our listeners really uh, ache and long for just 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 good scholarship to give them to give them insights when they're looking at some passages and they're wondering where do I even start with this how do how do I even begin um, so before we go on into learning a little bit more about the book we're going to take just a quick minute so that uh, CBE can tell you about some wonderful things coming up. CBE International presents Women in Scripture and Mission. Deborah was Israel's judge and prophet. She arose as a mother of Israel to protect Israel when they were weak and oppressed by the enemy. Barak, Israel's military general, obeyed Deborah's summons to attack the enemy. Deborah represented God's wisdom, which Barak wanted with him as he fought. Together, they defeated the enemy and wrote the victory song of Judges 5. Learn more at ministrywomen.org. That's ministrywomen.org. And we are back and talking about nobody's mother and Artemis of the Ephesians. And we've been learning a little bit about what's been behind the book, uh, your own personal story. And what I find um, so valuable about this work is you tackle one of the stickiest passages about concerning women in, in the New Testament. Like there are there are moments where if you were just like, say, in, in a restaurant or a public place and you just sort of accidentally overhear someone say something and it's this sentence that is so bizarre that your brain just sort of stops still and you go, wait, what? I feel like this passage has that effect for me because mm-hmm. as you read through it and you do, especially in the last chapter of your book, you really break down the component parts. It addresses modesty 
and dress. It talks about women teaching, women learning. It talks about creation order. It talks about childbearing. And with statements like women will be saved through or in childbearing, it, that's that's one of those things where, and you already expressed how this played out in your own story, but it's just one of those sentences that just makes me come to a screeching halt and say, how can I go forward? How can I go forward um, with this? And um, and so one of the things I, I appreciate about your book and wonder if you could just give us some more insights into is why we cannot simply just do a cursory reading of these path of, of what's in this passage um, and do what might be to some a, a, a common sense um, application mm-hmm. where we say, say, oh, women uh, shouldn't shouldn't teach. They should submit. Okay, that's very clear. Let's move on. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you discovered when unpacking this passage and, and for our listeners, what, what might be helpful as they're starting to investigate it. Sure. Well, I suspect that for your listeners, one of the challenges they have, which was a challenge for me, is you have a high view of scripture mm-hmm. and yet you want to have a high view of Paul. Yeah. But it's really hard to reconcile Romans 16, where it looks like in practice, he has men and women as ministry partners, but then over here, he's shutting women down. It doesn't make sense. And so that's one reason you can't just do a cursory read because it doesn't reconcile with the rest of the right. counsel of God. If you're going to assume from this passage in Timothy, in First Timothy, that it's a principle of creation that women are not supposed to impart truth to men, capital T truth, why would God ever call a woman as a prophet? And you've got Miriam, you've got Holy, you have so many exceptions. So then anytime you have a woman rising up, instead of just celebrating what she's doing, you're trying to figure out why God made an exception. Mm -hmm. And then even in our day, if you have a woman who's exceptional, she's trying to, you know, pull back on her gifts or being told to, instead of just embracing the full use. And so there's a challenge uh, that I faced where is the line between being accountable for gifts mm. and disobeying scripture? Mm. I, I will do whatever. I understand the mysteries of God are great. I don't, you know, there may be things God asked me to do. I don't understand. Mm. But I also understand that the, the scripture doesn't contradict itself. And when it appears to, the problem is, is usually we're doing a cursory read. Mm. And a great example is Paul tells the Corinthians, I want you to think about staying single. Right. And over right. in First Timothy, I want the young widows to marry. That's right. <laughs> right? Like you, you can't just take a plain sense of the language right. on that without saying the Bible contradicts itself. Mm-hmm. But you know Paul too well to go. He's not dumb. Like he, right. Paul is brilliant, and he's so good at rhetoric, mm-hmm. and and it has to make sense in Paul's mind. Timothy, you know, Peter acknowledges Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. And and I think even even if you take a quote plain sense of the language uh, interpretation, you're still going yeah. But how do you reconcile God saying women are more deceived, therefore they can teach children who are more vulnerable? Right. Why right. would the next pronouncement not be that men need to supervise every single thing that women do? Right. That, right. that would yeah. seem to be the logical outworking. So the logical outworking of the passage uh, requires some help. And here is something I think is really important to stress. So often people think I started with the backgrounds and then read them into First Timothy. Mm-hmm. But actually, Acts, the book of Acts, helps us have the best 
tools to interpret First Timothy because it tells us magic and Artemis are the two biggies right. in this city. Right. I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that, and um, perhaps you've answered as sufficiently as you want to, but I'd I'd like to give a little bit more space because your book is so. Um, you spend so much time on historical artifacts that are um, outside of the text. And I, I know um, maybe in some spaces I operate in or maybe with some people that I love, um, there's always that question of how how do we, how, how does this assist in our interpretation versus hinder our, like what, what relationship should we have to um, historical context, basically? Mm-hmm. What is, and I, I wonder as someone who has spent so much time kind of wading through even surprising sources of historical. Um, I loved the um, element in your book on um, where you could find different classes being represented in the historical mm. um, in the historical yeah. record, and who and who's telling the story and what story they're telling. But um, I wonder if you could, if you wanted to speak a little bit more on why it's important, or um, even though we have these places in Acts, what if how that then gives permission to more exploration. I think uh, you raise a really, really important question, which is there is the the danger and certainly the accusation that you all are explaining away something you don't like by pulling out historical context. Um, And I, I like to just go to a different passage altogether since this one is so fraught and look at first Corinthians 11 that talks about head coverings. Mm -hmm. And I found seven different interpretations for what that means all the way from the most conservative complementarian to the most liberal Mm -hmm. egalitarian. I mean, seven or eight views on what that means because people are saying, well, shaving your hair uh, must, like you have to know the backgrounds to know what Paul is saying. And for the longest time, we said shaving hair must have to do with prostitution. We're making assumptions from the background. Well, I was in Pompeii in January and you go into a brothel space and they have priceless with pictures of women and the women have full heads of beautiful hair. So that's where a background says, we can eliminate one of those options, it, it, whatever it means, which, and I think, yeah. I think it's a reference to adultery, but, mm-hmm. but that's beside the point. The point is right. sometimes the background doesn't just give us options. It also helps us eliminate options. And the idea that only one kind of scholar is using backgrounds is, is wrong. We are right. all sort of tr- trying to draw on backgrounds to understand That's right. even something as simple as the Psalms of Ascent in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Once you go to Israel and know that it's uphill to get to the temple, right. Right. then it makes sense that you're actually physically ascending right. um, and that maybe the Psalms of Ascent aren't spiritualized as, you know, sort of heavenly Psalms, but they're actually what people chanted and prayed as they're making their pilgrimages to the temple. So it's not, uh, it's not necessary to understand backgrounds, to understand the gospel that doesn't require any sort of special training, but also I think it's really important to think about where in in the poetical books, we are challenged that we are to search for God's word, like panning for gold. And, you know, I'm from the West Coast. Panning for gold is very hard work. It's backbreaking <laughs> work. It is not something you just read a cursory right. time and come up with something. Right. And I think that the idea that we don't have to labor to try to understand God's word um, right. is 
does it a disservice. Okay. I, I can't read Walden without <laughs> notes because I'm a hundred right. years removed, you know, or more. Right. Uh, so to think that we Westerners are going to think like yeah. uh, those in the Middle East 2000 years ago is pretty presumptuous. Agreed. I, I wonder, um, I think something I loved that you said earlier that I'd like to highlight even in in support in to emphasize your like your comments just then were you didn't know what you were going to find in the data it wasn't like you were walking into the data saying and this is what i expected to find and i i found that to be um i i found that humble posture to be really evident in reading your book um and invited the reader to be humble as well because i had read some of the sources um that you were not the historical sources, but some of the other texts that had had some other suggestions about Artemis and her relationship to fertility. And I didn't know enough to be able to go, oh, maybe that's not, that's not right. It made a certain kind of sense. And I think in your work, um, as you take the reader by the hand and explore the data, um, it does lead to some unexpected places. And I wonder what, um, maybe just one thing that was um, surprising or unexpected to you in your kind of journey through the data. So uh, my father-in-law gave me some money a couple Christmases ago, and being the nerd that I am, I spent it in during COVID in an online course on how to read inscriptions. And uh, you know, I love it. Uh, yeah, that's so great. <laughs> that's yeah, pretty nerdy. Awesome. I don't share that everywhere, but here I am telling all your listeners. Um, but anyway, one of the things I discovered in the process that has nothing to do with Artemis, but did have to do with the skills I had to gain in order to explore this, was finding the practice of where a person who was enslaved would uh, get together the money to. Uh, and sometimes even the slave owner would put up mm. the money to go to a temple. It was often Zeus uh, and buy the person out of slavery when the master died mm. and buy them for the God. In other words, Zeus owns you when I die. And since no human can ever, you know, come and claim that, you know, Zeus doesn't, yeah. you're free. And I saw Paul borrowing that language of, mm. of, us belonging to God and us being twice purchased and us mm. being free uh, as part of uh, having formerly been slaves to sin. And now we've been set free to God and we are now owned by God. Uh, I I loved that picture of uh, I am a free person in Christ mm-hmm. because I have been bought with the highest price in the universe. Uh, And I think that it, but I also, as a sidebar, really grew to appreciate how savvy Paul was. Mm. You might expect him to go in saying, that is so ridiculous. (laughs) Or, I mean, to lots of things, right? Mars Hill. Uh, you got a lot of, you know, right. altars up here to some people that are, they're just rocks, but right. instead he says, I see you're religious. Let me, yeah. let me tell you about the one you, you know, the, the unknown one that you don't know about who's really mm. the only one who's real. Um, so I really grew to love Paul even more mm. through this study yeah. and to see his heart for, I really feel like the the passage in question is Paul's heart for equality. Mm. saying Artemis, you know, she might've been born first in your creation story, but the real story, he was first. And and actually the woman was even deceived. It's not that women are more deceived. It's, I think it had an equalizing uh, force. And the fact that he follows it later in the book with elevating widows and talking about honoring widows. And and I 
suspect based on the history of nuns that that was perceived as an early church office. Mm, yeah. um, but again, I, we just, we have been too Western to understand Paul. Um, right. And so I, there's no shade for those coming before me. I'm standing on their shoulders. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I have tools they didn't have and they were doing the best they could with the data they had. Absolutely. So it's a joy to thank God, you know, that he has redeemed the pain in my past and and mm. turned it into a life message. Amen. And Amen. if if that is not a reason to go explore and pre-order and order Nobody's <laughs> Mother, I don't know what is. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your story, but also like about the discoveries that you've found in your um in in your in your in your nerdy quest through inscriptions <laughs> i think i think there's many fruit born and um and a greater appreciation for paul on the other side um we would love for people to be able to keep up with you so is there places that people could follow you or subscribe andreglan.com lots of free resources just g l a h n is how you spell that last name um, i love that's it. the easiest way and it's at sandra guan at twitter i am really active on Twitter. And, uh, I believe that anger turns sideways as humor. And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> the grief that my husband and I, you know, there were times it turned to cynicism. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so that's, that's a fun place for me mm-hmm. to Twitter's a, a place for your cynical humor side to come out. <laughs> I love it. Well, Indeed. we will point people in both of those directions and also to the CBE bookstore or wherever they buy books to go ahead and grab their copy of Nobody's Mother. And thank you listeners for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on social media. And you should also check out their website at www.cbeinternational.org for all of their amazing resources. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. Um, and you should go visit their bookstore where you can find Nobody's Mother and many more unbelievable resources and subjects that will enrich enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. We would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host, Aaron Monez. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers. 